This is an ABC podcast. If someone asked you to make some confident predictions about the state of American politics and culture 35 years from now, you'd probably be reluctant to have a go. Things in the USA are so volatile and changing so quickly that 35 years from now seems like an impossibly distant future, way too distant for crystal ball gazing. And yet, 35 years ago, back in 1998, a certain American philosopher made some amazingly detailed and accurate predictions about how things stand today. This was in a book of essays titled Achieving Our Country, and its author was Richard Rorty, and that's who we're talking about today. I'm David Rutledge. Welcome to The Philosopher's Zone and the second in our Radio National Summer Series of Highlight Programs from 2023. Richard Rorty wrote a lot about politics, and as a political thinker, he was very much a middle ground operator in that he would challenge assumptions and orthodoxies on the left as well as on the right. And that's something that really strikes you when you read Rorty in today's highly polarised political climate, where people tend to get lumped onto one side or the other of a very strict left-right binary. Rorty is way too nuanced to be categorised in that way, and it makes his work on American politics and political culture very refreshing to read. And even though the work is getting on a bit now, Rorty died in 2007, it still has a lot to tell us about the challenges to democracy and social equality that Americans are facing today. And then, as I mentioned, there's that remarkably prophetic note that he often strikes. Well, late in 2022, Princeton University Press published a collection of Richard Rorty's essays on politics, some of it international politics, but most of it looking at the American context. Some of those essays were previously unpublished, some of them had been hard to find, and all of them are well worth a read. It's a terrific collection. The title is What Can We Hope For? And I spoke this week with Chris Verparrell, one of its co-editors. Chris teaches at Union Institute and University in Cincinnati, Ohio, and I asked him to begin by talking about those 1998 predictions. These passages from the Achieving Our Country book went viral on social media around the time of the 2016 presidential election here in the U.S., And yes, he seemed to be predicting the rise of a Trump-like figure, what he called a strongman leader. And he had a, a narrative that helped make sense of parts of this, as well as issue some really startling, you know, prognostications. And the general narrative was that there had been a shift in the post 1960s U.S. where the focus, particularly on the left, was on changing the culture rather than working to primarily change laws and public policies. And that that shift had a kind of dark side. You know, Rorty was always quick to recognize the importance of the emphasis on diversity and excluded voices. But his insight was that economic inequality and economic insecurity was being ignored and was steadily increasing in the decades after. So what he predicted, I could just read a sentence or two to give it some flavor of it, was that there would be this, quote, bottom-up populist revolt. Here's a nice sentence from that book, quote, the non-suburban electorate will decide that the system has failed and start looking around for a strong man to vote for, someone willing to assure them that once he is elected, the smug bureaucrats, tricky lawyers, overpaid bond salesmen and postmodernist professors no longer will be calling the shots. (laughs) 
And then he predicted, I mean, this is really the, the, the sad but true part, that, quote, the gains made in the past 40 years by black and brown Americans and by homosexuals will be wiped out. Jocular contempt for women would come back into fashion. And all the resentment which badly educated Americans feel about having their manners dictated to them by college graduates will find an outlet. And that reading primarily of the economic insecurity, you know, part of the critique of what he didn't emphasize enough was the white backlash to perhaps the presidency of Barack Obama. You know, he, he thought about it more in terms of the economics, but that was the prediction. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing that strikes me about reading him today that didn't strike me quite as forcefully when I was reading him in the 80s and 90s is that he, he is as unrelenting a critic of the American political left as he is of, of the right. And that's something that really stands out in today's political climate where, where things are so polarised. And I imagine that a lot of contemporary readers of Rorty, maybe coming to him for the first time, might reflexively label him a leftist, but that label sits kind of awkwardly. So broadly speaking, what were his politics? What kind of voter was he? One of his most direct references, which probably is no longer (laughs) current, is that he was a Hubert Humphrey liberal. Hubert Humphrey was a senator during the 1950s and 1960s in the U.S. He was vice president to Lyndon Johnson in Johnson's presidential term and ultimately lost to Richard Nixon in 1968. But Humphrey, you know, throughout the 1950s was a supporter of labor unions, an early advocate for ending segregation, nuclear disarmament. He was one of the writers of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 in the U.S. So he really seemed to be on the right side of the issues, Rorty thought, and he likened his own politics to that. But he tended to think of himself as part of the left that was active in the first half of the 20th century in the U.S., who worked within the framework of constitutional democracy to, quote, protect the weak from the strong. I mean, that's what he saw as the overarching emphasis. And he's distinguished that from the new left that emerges, you know, around the time of the Vietnam War, that somewhere around, he wrote, 1964, they decided that it was no longer possible to work within the system for social justice. And then what was required was some kind of radical or revolutionary transformation, perhaps, you know, a kind of Marxist transformation in the economy, some other sort of move outside traditional liberal democracy and politics. And he saw that as the problem. I mean, in a nutshell, he was about the potential for working within the constitutional democratic system. I mean, the only other uh, footnote I would add to his understanding of himself and his own liberalism was kind of a quirky definition of being a liberal that he borrowed from political philosopher Judith Schklar. And her definition of a liberal was someone who believed that, quote, cruelty is the worst thing we do. And a lot of Rorty's own politics are informed by this emphasis on reducing cruelty and human suffering as the overarching political goal. 
Yeah, but as you've mentioned, his primary focus there was policy and, you know, looking at the sort of the economic circumstances, economic uh, remedies, rather than the sort of cultural battles that he saw the left as getting caught up in. Let's have a look at one or two of those cultural battles, because I always find it interesting that he is very critical of identity politics on the left. It, it, what exactly does he mean by identity politics and, and how does he see identity politics as having led the left down the wrong path? Yeah, I've already tended to think of identity politics as focusing on what he called stigma, social stigma and attached forms of humiliation and then working to repair that. You know, he praised the cultural left that he identified with this turn to identity politics for its successes, you know, and this is one of the places where, um, you know, he isn't simply a knee-jerk critic of it. He thought that things like women's studies and African-American studies, you know, in the academy, gay and lesbian studies, etc., really had done a lot of good. And by students in early education reading Toni Morrison in high school, and that this has improved the treatment of groups that had been stigmatized. But he saw, again, you know, this dark side that accompanied it. And as we said before, as socially accepted sadism, he also referred to that stigma and sadism, declined, you know, economic inequality was increasing. And that's what leads us to that bottom-up populist revolt we talked about. But he also saw that, you know, nobody is, this is a quote, setting up a program in unemployed studies, homeless studies, trailer park studies, because the unemployed, the homeless, and residents of trailer parks are not other in the relevant sense. So he saw this sort of turn away from certain constituencies that, in his view, was leading down um, a dark road. But you see, there's a further kind of complexity to Rorty's stance on identity, is that while he was critical of the blind spots within identity politics, he also ends up appealing to the concept of moral identity himself as kind of the central ethical and moral substance of our beliefs and values and the place where there's the most potential for change and moral progress. So as he starts to think about ethics in a way that doesn't rely on transcendental principles. He appeals to the way in which our own moral identities give us normative force in our decisions, the ways in which the name of the group we belong to or identify with is going to give us reasons to do something or not do something. So, for example, when we in the U.S. might say that, well, X made me ashamed to be an American, or the kind of statement that, well, you know, we Australians simply do not do that, X, whatever it is. We're appealing to a conception of our own moral identity and implicitly a moral community that we view as included in that. So he strangely relies on a conception of identity and the way in which we can expand that identity to be more inclusive, while at the same time, you know, critiquing identity politics as such. And I think there, there's a certain complexity there that often doesn't get recognized. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's complexity in a lot of his positions, I think, which is what makes him so interesting. I mean, one is his his belief in a certain kind of patriotism, which in some respects always strikes me as surprising coming from a, a figure like that. The uh, Another one is the criticism that he levels against the American intellectual class. I mean, we've touched on this already, but he writes about the elitist disdain of intellectuals for the masses in America. He takes issue with academia in particular. And of course, these are big talking points on the right. And yet, Rorty is clearly not a reactionary right-wing culture warrior. So what's the difference then between Rorty and, say, a conservative commentator in the National Review, who, who is also writing about elitism on the left and all those out-of-touch intellectuals who infest the university humanities departments? Yeah, I, I see the resemblance for sure. I mean, Rorty himself complained about what he called, you know, the campaign for compulsory undergraduate courses that would, quote, sensitize students to cultural differences, you know, back in 1995. And he said at the time that conservatives, quote, have some good points. <laughs> but he added their exaggerations and their lies are shameless. So I think where the differences emerge is that, first of all, he did recognize the value and the historic gains that even courses like, you know, those that try to sensitize students to cultural differences and diversity had made across academia and even in secondary education. But first, he didn't think they should be compulsory. So that was a distinction. We see that a bit today. And he really was attentive to the difference between treating students, you know, as fellow citizens who could be persuaded to think differently and then insinuating that they needed some sort of repair. But he thought those kind of courses, they should be improved, right, not abandoned. And this is another difference, that he thought genuine discussion about disparities within American society was worthwhile in those kind of settings. And then, you know, kind of thirdly, he was very attuned to the extent to which on the right, it really is a cynical ploy that is just designed to stoke anti-elitism. I mean, he wrote, and th this is in our collection here, it's called Demonizing the Academy. This is in 1995. He was already noting right-wing thinkers who, quote, never tire of recounting the follies of liberal professors. But he rejected the idea that the biggest dangers to free speech come from a leftist moralistic liberalism. In fact, he stated quite clearly that the well-organized, well-financed and energetic religious right is a hundred times more threatening to free speech and diversity than all of what he called the multiculturalists put together. And even though he said, sure, there is this frivolity and self-righteousness on the part of some liberal professors, he estimated it was about 2% of university teachers. <laughs> but when he writes about how the left should be focusing more on economic disparity and socioeconomic inequality and less on identity politics, is it the case then that he looks at things like oppression of racialized minorities, the oppression of sexual minorities, the oppression of women, and sees those as less urgent concerns than the economic ones. My own sense is that they're not second-order concerns, but Rorty has a different emphasis in his diagnosis and then in his proposed remedy, where he tended to ultimately, I think, reduce things like anti-Black racism and white grievance to things that he would call like sadism. 
and selfishness. You know, he spoke often of groups that, um, you know, the white uh, majority simply enjoys shoving around and wanted to lessen and really attack that sort of shoving around. But he often didn't put it in the terms of direct remedies for racial injustice or sexual injustice, etc. And as we've seen already, once the left started to think that that kind of sadism, again, that's his term, had deeper roots than the economic inequality, that's where he thinks things start to get off topic. But he really was reluctant to emphasize differences and discontinuities between groups, where he thought we really needed to work on highlighting what's shared, focusing on continuities, trying to build this inclusive moral community. And that often meant that he wasn't directly uh, targeting particular injustices for particular groups. I mean, he was always very encouraging of work on those fronts and, you know, valued the historical achievements. But his own thinking tended to move away from those kinds of group-specific concerns because he thought ultimately that it just leads to challenges on the front of an inclusive moral community. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and my guest this week, Chris Perel. Chris is co-editor of a recent collection of the essays of American philosopher Richard Rorty, who died in 2007. We're talking this week about Rorty's contribution to American political thought and how his work is still highly relevant to the cultural and political turmoil that we see boiling away in the USA today. I'd like to go back to something you mentioned earlier there about the moral identity one can take from one's nationality. And of course, Rorty was an unashamed proponent of a certain kind of patriotism. And in the essay titled, Does Being an American Give One a Moral Identity? He writes that if one lives under a dictatorship, it is a bad thing to let one's citizenship contribute to forming one's moral identity. If one lives in a functioning constitutional democracy, I would argue it is an unequivocally good thing. And the question that raises for me is, would Rorty still recognise today's America as a functioning constitutional democracy worthy of underpinning the moral identity of its citizens? Would he recognise today's uh, constitutional democracies as still functioning? I mean, barely, (laughs) perhaps. I mean, Rorty certainly did, going back to the 90s, worry about populist movements overturning constitutional governments, I mean, quite explicitly. And the idea here in the U.S. where, you know, the three branches of government can be controlled by the same party in a way that eliminates the kinds of checks and balances that were essential on the, you know, the founder's view, I think that would be seriously concerning to him. And, you know, he wrote on many occasions of the potential dark side. In fact, in this uh, looking backwards from the year 2096 essay where he imagines an encyclopedia entry in the year 2096, looking back on the 21st century, he feared and wrote quite explicitly about a period of dark years, a 30-year period. People said he missed it by two years because he dated it 2014 to 2044, but a time in which democracy 
is suspended in the U.S. and there is a dictatorship. So on the one hand, he didn't shy away from the dangers, but I think still worthy of moral identity, I think he would have a strong yes there because of the way that a commitment to ideals and imagining a better future, in his view, was essential to the kind of citizenry that is going to be motivated to promote change. And it is this emotional connection to the nation, even if it is what he called, quote, a dream country, that that kind of emotional attachment to what we hope our country can become is for him what makes a difference between agents and spectators who stand by. So I think ultimately he might question the functioning of our current democracies, but I don't think he would give up on the idea that attaching ourselves and our aspirations to what we hope our country can become is essential. And, you know, that's the achieving our country phrase that he borrowed from James Baldwin. And that's where he also distinguished the kind of critiques of America that were people willing to write it off versus those like Baldwin who saw the deep injustices, but was committed to changing America because he loved it so deeply. So I, my sense is that that's where he would end up. Yet he certainly feared those dark times and the potential for it at any moment. Let's talk a little about the philosophy, because uh, Richard Rorty was a philosopher who is deeply engaged with politics, and yet he thought that philosophy and politics didn't necessarily have a lot to do with each other, or in, in a sense. The essay, uh, Democracy and Philosophy, in, in your collection, opens with the assertion that philosophy is a ladder that Western political thinking climbed up and then shoved aside. What does he mean by that, do you think? Yeah, there's sort of two dimensions to that view. One is an overarching historical narrative that he builds about the trajectory of the West from the Enlightenment forward, where the uh, source of human redemption sort of shifts from religion, he thinks, to philosophy, and then ultimately it starts to be displaced by literature as the discourse that is going to provide redemption and be a vehicle for ethical reflection. So he sees that trajectory happening and he thinks philosophy was important in a certain period of time in Western history, but there's also been a shift beyond it. And then the second part is his reading of the Enlightenment and the relationship between Enlightenment philosophy and then Enlightenment political ideals. And he thought that the early Enlightenment uh, rationalists in particular sought to provide a foundation for the political ideals of the Enlightenment, which he often would sum up with like liberty, equality, and fraternity. And that attempt to find a non-human foundation or source for the political goals in order to ensure that the Western uh, European vision was the right one, he thinks was a flawed project that ultimately isn't needed anymore. And it in fact led to philosophy becoming more and more abstract, more and more removed from social and political reality in a way that, you know, he thinks we can do away with and shift philosophy. So I think he did think that there were certain 
attitudes, dispositions, virtues that he associated with American pragmatism that he thought went together sort of easily with American patriotism, his emphasis on redistributing economic uh, resources, and then even the kind of anti-communism that he aligned with early on. So the relationship between philosophy and politics for him was always contingent and not necessary. And that meant that one could be Mussolini and admire the writings of pragmatist philosopher William James, because there's nothing inherent in philosophy that's going to save us from that. But at the same time, he thought it, it fit rather nicely with the democratic uh, culture. I wonder if there's a sense in which his philosophical orientation, though, uh, can be seen to sort of undermine his politics. Because in the essay, Rethinking Democracy, Rorty approvingly cites a list of theses that he, he says summarise postmodern scepticism. And the first two are, number one, there is no intrinsic character of reality, no description of the world is closer to its nature than any other. And number two, there is no correspondence to reality to serve as the mark of truth. Rather, we call beliefs true when they seem better tools than any as yet imagined alternative beliefs. So, I mean, that's impeccably postmodern, but on the face of it, one could say that that kind of scepticism doesn't really serve us very well in the era of fake news and weaponized disinformation. It's fine as a philosophical point about language, but if we take it into the political realm, this idea of there being no intrinsic character of reality arguably just gives cover to people who want to sell lies as truth, you know, the alternative facts merchants. What are your thoughts on that? And what, what might his thoughts have been? Yeah, this is a great question. And, and indeed, you know, some have argued that Rorty's critiques of truth and realism and the idea of an objective realm of facts are going to deprive us of an ability to push back against fake news disinformation. There's actually an issue of the journal Common Knowledge coming out uh, dealing with Rorty's legacy that I contributed to uh, in this area. But I, I've argued that there's a different way to understand Rorty's contribution here. And I think he really gives us insight into why appeals to truth and to what seem to be obvious facts regularly fail to persuade or even be acknowledged by those who cling to a different worldview. And I think what he understood is that it's not truth by itself or facts by themselves that matter, but the relationship between truth and facts in one corner of a triangle, the communities of interpretation that exist, whether we're aware of it or not, and then individuals in the third corner. And it's been said by some, uh, one of the philosophers, Susan Dealman, that Vorty reversed this traditional priority of epistemology or issues of knowledge and truth over community by recognizing that the reason when that facts and truth have the power they do is because they presuppose certain communal commitments, even when we're not aware of it. So there's actually ethical virtues that are presupposed. Things like, you know, a willingness to listen to what others have to say, or the ability to question our own certainties and, and look for alternatives. So what he understood is that the way to defeat fake news and self-serving lies, disinformation, 
is not simply by insisting on facts, because we see how often that didn't work. I mean, the, the number of, of lies that I think Trump told his president uh, during his term was in the thousands, and they were corrected day on a daily basis from journalists with really not much to show for it. So what he, I think Rorty's insight is that it's not by just reporting facts or pointing them out, and this is the harder part, but by rebuilding ties of solidarity, trust to help reconstitute a community of interpretation. And that until relationships are built across fractured communities that exist today, I mean, often even within our own families, the facts and truth are never going to be a, a source of light or wisdom while we have these fractured communities. So he shifts us away from the concern with facts themselves and gets us to think about, and this is my view, how to reestablish a kind of a community of interpretation, if you will, that is what we need for facts to be recognized as such. And I guess this is where his interest in art and literature may come in as well, in that what we're looking at is the need for a mode of communication which, as you say, doesn't rely on facts. It doesn't just sort of point at the world like a scientist might do and say, look, look at that. That's how it is. You know, he's talking about, well, he's sort of leaving room for rhetoric, emotional persuasion, aesthetic persuasion, this kind of thing. Right. And in fact, often when, you know, scientists point to something, it isn't just the facts that they're pointing out. There's actually something presupposed in the way of trust of scientists. And that knowledge is not just, as we say, epistemic or about, you know, getting the facts correct. There's another component that might be ethical, aesthetic in nature, and that involves our affective bonds, including things like trust and solidarity, to others like scientists. And, you know, the way that echo chambers tend to work is by undermining trust in any sources of information outside of the chamber itself. So when you start to see that, no one's going to acknowledge the facts of the scientists until there's some trust rebuilt. And I think that shift to the affective dimension of something like trust, to my mind, is one of Rorty's key insights that you know remains deeply relevant for us today. Well, I just want to ask finally, Chris, as someone who's been reading and editing and writing on Rorty for decades, and as the cultural and political landscape in America just continues to evolve this incredible upheaval, are you still finding new angles, new perspectives on on Rorty's work? You know, surprisingly, I I do uh, find them. I mean, Certainly, new perspectives in his work is a return to things that Rorty wrote that I might not have looked at for a while. And people who often uh, work on Rorty report going back to essays of his and not remembering how rich and hard-hitting they actually are. So I certainly I find in rereading Rorty, because he covered so much ground and he was so widely read across the humanities, social sciences, poetry, literature, that one can always find resonances that one may not have noticed. So there's that for me. But even in the last five years or so, there's been a near explosion of scholarship on Rorty's work. 
something like, you know, just in the last three years, like half a dozen anthologies devoted to Rorty's. I mean, this is apart from work I've done on, on Rorty's own unpublished materials um, that focus on his ethics, his politics, his metaphysics, and epistemology, looking at Rorty's insights about extending our moral community to non-human beings in the animal world. And even, as he wrote in one place, even the trees is being included in our moral sphere of concern. So there's surprisingly been a lot of new and interesting work on Rorty because when he passed away in 2007, there was some question whether Rorty's impact was in a particular moment and would actually run its course. And, you know, I'm pleased to report that new readers of Rorty and new readers of pragmatism are finding more and more of interest and of use in their their work today. Yeah, and I'll just mention in closing, there's also just the pleasure in the work, the aesthetic encounter with his writing, because there's such an interesting contradiction there between the lucidity and clarity and analytic precision of his style on one hand, and then the fact that on the other hand, he is far from being an analytic philosopher. And I guess that for anyone who has yet to discover Rorty and who likes their philosophy to offer a, a, a literary encounter as much as anything else, I, I recommend him in much the same way as I would recommend someone like Nietzsche, just as a great read, yeah? Yes. I mean, you know, certainly Rorty was very good at the analytic game, you know, um, and he did write those kind of clear, lucid, logical type um, essays, particularly to my mind, it's around 1965 to 1975, and then occasionally afterward in dialogue with his friends. But the other side of Rorty is that he rejected explicitly argumentation for things like, you know, what he called redescription. And then he said he wasn't going to make an ar- give an argument to support his positions. He was just going to redescribe, you know, his own and those of others to make, you know, them not look good. Because he realized that rational or logical argumentation relies on certain shared premises. He, he talked about paradigms of inference, where we work within what is shared, and then paradigms of imagination, where new metaphors, you know, new vocabularies, new creative uses and misuses of language, he called it at one point, inquiry is recontextualization. These sorts of imaginative interventions actually can open a space for looking at things that were familiar in a different way. And I think that's ultimately where Rorty's essays find so much, I think, impact on people is that he can put together thinkers, you know, like Charles Dickens and Heidegger in the same essay and cause you to rethink, you know, all your preconceived ideas. So I think. He does have that ability, but he's been called the best writer in American philosophy since William James, I think, for a reason. Christopher Parrell, he teaches at Union Institute and University in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he's co-editor, along with W.P. Malecki, of What Can We Hope For? That's a collection of Richard Rorty's essays that I can't recommend highly enough. We'll put publication details on the website. And this has been The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, on ABC Radio and the ABC Listen app. Great to be with you again this week, and I hope you can join me next time. Bye for now. Listener.